Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Today, let us remember that we gather on land that is not our land. On this long weekend, Columbus Day and Indigenous Peoples Day, I'm reminded of a popular folk song by Woody Guthrie, but compelled to make some changes. This land is not your land. This land is not my land. From California to the New York Island, from the great redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was not made for you and me. Before Christopher Columbus landed on these shores, every day was Indigenous Peoples Day. Most of us here in this church and in America are descendants of strangers to this country. What does it mean to live on someone else's ancestral land? This land, right here in Boston, the Back Bay, beneath our feet, beneath the floorboards of the church, belonged to the Massachusetts people. In 1614, when John Smith encountered the Massachusetts, they numbered 3,000. That would be like everyone who lives within a block of the Boston Common. Then in just three years, three separate European diseases, the bubonic plague, yellow fever, and smallpox, wiped out three quarters of their population. With only about 800 people left, they would have fit here in this sanctuary and not even filled it. Because they were depleted by disease, they were then susceptible to attack by rivals. So by, by uh, 1620, just six years later, the pilgrims found the Massachusetts villages standing empty, like ghost towns. The diseases that Europeans brought and that they sometimes spread intentionally, for example with smallpox blankets, ravaged the native population. Along the eastern seaboard, nine-tenths of all indigenous people died. The islands were completely depopulated. Then the Europeans massacred the Indians and forcibly relocated many. As a white person, I wasn't entirely sure what to say about all of this today. So I talked to a few white colleagues who have done some anti-racism training and a Native American colleague. In talking to my friend Isaac, I acknowledged that it could be problematic to ask him for his thoughts as if he was somehow obligated to help me figure it out just because he's Native American. But he said he appreciated me asking because white people all too often think we know best and don't bother to ask what we should be doing. Isaac added something very poignant he wanted me to share with you today. He said, if you're counting both continents of the Americas, the death toll from Columbus's arrival to the present was likely close to 50 million people, or 96% of the whole population. As he put it, that's the equivalent to obliterating the city of Cambridge each year for 500 years, 
or in a family of 50, killing all but two. My friend Sean, who's white and tries to be in solidarity with indigenous people added, in addition to the truth telling about the past, it's important to talk about Native Americans in the present and how to be an ally. He says we need to remember the vitality of indigenous peoples today, their resistance, their cultures, how some of the Wampanoags are resurrecting their language, how the Choctaw are the biggest employer in their country, how the Dakota have not taken a billion dollar settlement for the Black Hills because they believe in being reunited with their land, not being paid for it. Many of the First Nations across the country, including the nearby Wampanoag, Narragansett, Nipmuc, Pequot, and Mohegan have survived to the present. Today, according to the North American Indian Center of Boston, the greater Boston area is home to about 6,000 Native Americans from over 30 tribes. What does it mean to live together in this city, native and non-native? What do non-natives owe native neighbors? As Unitarian Universalists, our second principle calls us to pursue justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. Our sixth principle encourages us to work for world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. After 500 years of Native American oppression, what would it look like to take a step closer to right relationship? The Jewish practice of atonement offers one model. Last Saturday was Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish year, also known as the Day of Atonement. There's a connection between holiness and atonement. On Yom Kippur, many of our Jewish friends spent the day at synagogue, praying, fasting, and repenting. This is a time when Jews seek forgiveness for their sins, strive to improve themselves and make amends with those they have wronged so they can make peace with God and their fellow human beings. It's a time of reconciliation, beginning with introspection. On Yom Kippur, Jews turn inward and examine themselves, asking, who have I hurt? What do I need to do to make amends? Yom Kippur makes a lot of sense as a spiritual practice for a community. Imagine the Jewish community over thousands of years now making amends on a yearly basis for all the ways they've wronged each other Atoning clears out the sins of the past. Making amends creates a way forward. Imagine crimes against humanity and social sin building up year after year after year for 500 years without atonement, without making amends. This is essentially how the US currently stands with the First Nations. From physical and cultural genocide to forced relocation, sterilization, and assimilation, to the 400 treaties that the US government made with Native Americans but then broke, we are in need of facing the past to create a way forward. On this long weekend, Columbus Day and Indigenous Peoples Day, we would do well to reflect on atonement. This can be a time of reflection and repentance, a time to renew our commitment to right relationship, a time to seek forgiveness for the sins of the past, strive to improve relations with the people of the First Nations, and make amends with those who have been wronged so we can make peace with ourselves and with our fellow human beings. 
We might think of it as a time of reconciliation beginning with introspection. We might turn inward and examine ourselves, asking, who have I hurt? Or, who have my ancestors hurt? Who has my government hurt? And how have I benefited from it? Who have I hurt by looking the other way instead of being an ally? What do I need to do to make amends, to make a way forward? A great Jewish teacher, Jesus, the inspiration for Christianity, an inspiration for Unitarianism and Universalism, has a wonderful, wonderful story about looking the other way or being an ally. It's a well-known story, but it's worth repeating. A Jewish guy is walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho when all of a sudden he's attacked by robbers, beaten, left for dead on the side of the road. Eventually, a very religious man, a priest in fact, comes down the road, sees the man in the ditch, looks the other way, keeps going, leaving the man to suffer. A little while later, another very religious man, a Levite, comes down the road, sees the man in the ditch, looks the other way, keeps going, leaving the man to suffer. Then a third person comes down the road. We celebrate him. He's the hero. He's the good Samaritan. The Samaritan came from a different religion. He was from a class of people reviled by the Jews. The priest, the Levite, and many others would have written him off. But when the Samaritan sees the Jewish man in the ditch, he doesn't look away. He crosses the road to see what he can do. There's something about looking, something about seeing that is important to being a properly religious person. Seeing is when we start to care. And when we start to care, we start to take action. The Samaritan chooses to go to the Jewish man and be with him at his side. Instead of being another passerby, he chooses to be an ally. The book of Luke tells us, when the Samaritan saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, or two days' worth of his own pay as a day laborer, and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. The parable of the Good Samaritan shows us how to be an ally to those who have been left for dead. Those who have been wrestled down and left in a ditch to die or survive on their own. And let's remember that the Jewish man in the story did survive, the way Native Americans have been very resilient. This isn't about saving poor, helpless victims. This is about being an ally to people who are capable but have been wrongfully oppressed. The Samaritan isn't motivated to help the man in the ditch out of guilt or an egotistical desire to save him. That's important to me to point out uh, because we're not talking about being motivated by white guilt or the white savior complex. The Samaritan is motivated by genuine concern for a fellow human being and wants to see what he can do to help alleviate his suffering with sustained commitment. To do this, he crosses the road to meet the man where he is. Latin American liberation theologians emphasize this point, that the Samaritan has to choose to cross the road to help the man in the ditch. We have to make our neighbor's struggles our own concern. 
The Samaritan learns what the Jewish man needs and tries to address it in every way he can. In caring for his fellow human being, he makes amends for the past and creates a new way forward. Because you see, when Jesus told this story in the first century, the Jews and Samaritans had a long history of ethnic tension and violence. They both claimed the land. They wouldn't go to each other's separate territories. They didn't speak to each other. They barely had any contact with each other at all. Which reminds me of how Europeans and white Americans claimed the land that was inhabited by the First Nations, how Native Americans were forced onto reservations, how white people typically don't go to these separate territories, and how there's little contact between Native people who live on reservations and non-Native people who live in metropolitan areas. It makes me wonder how many of us who are descended from immigrants even know our Native neighbors. Perhaps it's time to learn more about what American Indians today need and want. With the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus, with the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus widens the definition of neighbor and the definition of community. He shows us that neighbors may have conflicts and may not even know each other. He shows us that communities may be made up of many groups, and regardless of our historic tensions, the right thing to do in community is to care for one another so that everyone's needs are met. One of the ways the Samaritan tends to the Jewish man's needs and facilitates his healing process is by paying for his expenses. The Samaritan gives some of his own money to the Jewish man whose money was stolen. This reminds me of the idea of reparations. It's only right that the US government would repay the First Nations for some of the damage that it's done, that it would make amends in this way to create a new way forward. Two weeks ago, in fact, the Obama administration announced the good news that it will make a payment to the Navajo Nation of $554 million. This is something to celebrate. It's the largest settlement ever made with one tribe. Even more laudable is that since taking office, Obama has approved $2.6 billion for 80 tribes. Many of the First Nations simply want self-determination, meaning they want to govern their own affairs. Many want to develop economic opportunities. Many have established tribal colleges and universities. Many want to preserve their, their culture, language, and traditions. So this money will go a long way to supporting Native American goals. This is a huge step forward, and there is much more to do. Now is the time for us to build a new way. To do the work ahead, we must adopt the right attitude and take responsible action. In their book, Cry of My People, the Latin American liberation theologians Esther and Mortimer Arias talk about how to be in solidarity with those who are wrongfully poor and oppressed. They lay out three steps to being a good neighbor. Awareness, identification, responsible action. They write, the first step is to become aware, like the Good Samaritan, who saw the man on the road. To become aware of people's struggles, we have to face them. The priest and the Levite were supposedly very religious, but they looked away from the man in need. The priest and the Levite were so the priest and the Levite were the ones who looked away. The Samaritan, our ethical role model, doesn't look away. The truly religious response that puts us in right relationship with one another starts with seeing each other. 
After seeing what people need, the second step is to identify with them. Esther and Mortimer Arias continue, the priest and the Levite saw the man in the ditch, but they passed by on the other side. They were aware of the stripped, beaten, half-dead man on the road, but they did not identify with him, and they did not respond with the necessary action. They did not recognize him as a neighbor. Third, they say, you have to cross to the other side of the road, to cross barriers. In those few steps, the Samaritan crossed racial, religious, and social barriers that separated a Samaritan from a Jew. To respond is to cross barriers. To love our neighbor, they say, does not mean only to love the neighbor near me or the individual that happens to come my way. It means also to love the far away, the distant neighbor who belongs to a different class, race, sex, group, or nation. It is the neighbor who belongs to the oppressed masses, whose world we have to enter, with whose cause we have to side. In this case, to enter the world of the oppressed might mean to educate ourselves. If you don't know much about the Massachusetts, who once lived right here where we are right now, this weekend will be a good time to look them up. Better yet, look up the Wampanoag, who continue to live in Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard. A group of Wampanoag are currently bringing their language back to life with the Wampanoag Language Reclamation Project. According to their website, there were no fluent speakers of the language for six generations, over 150 years. But after earning a master's degree in Algonquian linguistics from MIT in 2000, Jesse Littledoe Baird is heading up the project to bring it back. She says, reclaiming our language is one means of repairing the broken circle of cultural loss and pain. To be able to understand and speak our language means to see the world as our families did for centuries. This is but one path which keeps us connected to our people, the earth and the philosophies and truths given to us by the creator. Baird and her group have made so much progress resuscitating the language that they have bigger ambitions. They just submitted an application to open a language immersion school next August. There, Wampanoag children will grow up learning their language, culture, and traditional values. If you're excited about this idea, as I am, you can go ahead and donate to it online. This is what taking a step towards right relationship looks like. And there are many other steps I'd like to encourage you to take. Check out the Native American Heritage Association and learn about current issues. Go to a program offered by the Massachusetts Center for Native American Awareness here in Boston. Donate to the American Indian Graduate Center. 93% of every dollar goes to scholarships for young Native Americans so they can go to college. On, number, on November 4th, vote for candidates who support Native American self-determination. On Wednesday nights, from this Wednesday until November 19th, go to the Multicultural Anti-Racism Workshop series here at ASC. This workshop seeks to interrupt the workings of racism and transform how people from different racial and ethnic groups understand and relate to each other. You can learn more about it in the inside brochure in your order of service. And if you can't go to the workshops here at church, consider taking an anti-racism workshop nearby because there are lots of them around. 
at Community Change in Boston, for example, or the Cambridge Center for Adult Education. All oppressions are interrelated, as we know, and it's up, and it's up to us to not look away, but choose to be an ally. Friends, on this long weekend, Columbus Day and Indigenous Peoples Day, may we remember that before Christopher Columbus landed on these shores, every day was Indigenous Peoples Day. Our faith calls us to justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. May we embrace a spiritual practice of atonement, make amends for the past, and create a new way forward. The right thing to do in community is to care for one another. Like the Good Samaritan, may we become aware, seek to identify with others, and cross barriers that separate ourselves from one another. May we choose to be allies, open ourselves to learning what others need, and take concrete action that benefits our neighbors. Amen. Blessed be. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.